religious news services and secular media alike were drawn there to that university campus. It seems that something unusual was going on. One word that has been used was the Asbury outpouring. You see, it started when students on February the 8th kind of hung around after chapel was over. Because chapel wasn't really over, it turned out. (laughs) They continued to sing and pray. Other students joined in over the course of several days. A little short documentary has been done on it, and I was watching it. A student named Zeke. Zeke is a student there, and he said he lingered at chapel for an extra moment just to reflect on what was going on, and then he went on to class as usual. This was that first day. But he said when class was finished, he was surprised to hear singing going on still. He said, I went back up, and it was surreal. The peace that was in the room was unexplainable, he said. He said, so a couple of buddies and I just went running around to the different classrooms and barged in on the classes and said, revival is happening. And by the time the university leaders decided it was time to to close it out, it's estimated that 50,000 students from over 265 different colleges and universities visited what was going on there at Asbury, not to speak of all the other folks who weren't college students. Many of them had just been drawn by social media. Other campuses, other colleges, other seminaries had similar things break out. Revival. What in the world is it? Charles Spurgeon defined revival. He said, revival is to live again. To receive again a life which has almost expired. To rekindle into a flame the vital spark that was nearly extinguished. Revival. Keep that, keep that word in your mind. The other word I want you to think about is repentance. We've talked a little bit about it already this morning. On October the 31st, 1517, we'll remember that Martin Luther nailed what are called the 95 Theses to the door at the Wittenberg Chapel there in his town. It's just a common bulletin board. It happened all the time. He didn't even really develop all of his Reformation theology until the years that followed. But those 95 theses begin with one about repentance. I'll mention it in a few minutes. But what is true repentance? What is the true nature of being in a right relationship with God? And this was all going on in the context of indulgences, where you could buy and sell forgiveness through the Catholic Church, both for yourself, your family, those who had died, and those who would. So in that context, Martin Luther was drawn to the concept of repentance. But this journey had been going on in his life really for many years. Ten years prior to this, he had been ordained as a Catholic priest. And it rocked his world in a lot of ways. So what happened when he was ordained was his first mass was scheduled a month later. And that month delay gave his family and friends opportunity to invite each other. You know, we're going to go to the boys first sermon, his first mass. It was a big deal for his family. So they had a month to get ready and they were all excited about the upcoming first service. Everybody had a lot of anticipation. Everybody except Martin Luther. He was not at all looking forward to it. In fact, he wrote to his mentor... And he confessed his reservations about being worthy to stand before the people and before God and administer the sacrament. It frightened him. Because Luther had seen priests 
mindlessly, robotically just walk through the litany. They didn't mean it. They didn't understand it, many of them. And they're just going through the motions. You see, Luther's problem was not that he didn't care. His problem was he cared too much. And it burdened him. Later he would write about that first Mass. Here's what he said. The Mass began with the words, We offer unto thee the living, true, and eternal God. And Luther said, At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. Now, the German word for what was going on, it's been referred to as Luther's Anfeshton. It can't even translate that word from German into English accurately. It means a deep, deep terror. He was scared to death. He said, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes and raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod the earth trembles. And shall a miserable little pygmy like me say, I want this, I ask for this? I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. So think about revival. Think about repentance. Think about what we thought about three weeks ago as we were in 1 Samuel chapter 6, and the question that the, the men of Israel raised, who is able to stand before this God? That's a good question. Who is able to stand before this God? And 1 Samuel chapter 7 helps us understand that. So, before I read the, ver- the passage in chapter 7, let's just kind of think for a minute where we are, where we've been, okay? So, historically... The nation of Israel has been in the promised land now for about 400 years or so. So it's a historical period that actually began with Abraham and has worked its way all the way through 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel will be the last of the judges, and he will will soon call out Saul to be king. And and Samuel will lead them historically from this time of the judges into the time of, of a king. Ultimately, to the Davidic king, to David and his descendants. So, historically, that's kind of where they're at. Spiritually, they are still in the time of the judges. And remember what the time of the judges is. It's summarized three different times in the book of Judges. That there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, spiritually speaking, there is spiritual and moral bankruptcy. Everyone does what they want to, what they think is right. But there is a remnant. There's a remnant. There's a remnant in the book of Ruth. There's a faithful family, a barren woman, and God answers. In 1 Samuel, there's a faithful family, a barren woman. By the way, that barrenness is a picture of Israel's barrenness. It's a picture of Israel's spiritual fruitlessness and deadness. So there's a faithful family in 1 Samuel, just an ordinary Israelite family. And this woman's grief and her faith come together as she prays to God and asks for a child. And Hannah prays that prayer. 
And Hannah prays for a son specifically, and God answers her prayer. Remember that? And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah's recounting this, and she says, For this child I pray, the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. Talking about the boy, talking about Samuel. I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So Hannah prays for a son. God gives her a son. And God in that process is raising up for himself a prophet. Raising up for himself a priest. As he's raising up Samuel, he is cleaning house. He is putting down Eli and his corrupt sons. And that is given to us there in, the, in this passage as we look through. Eli is old, he is fat, he is inept in many ways, and his sons are worse. They are inept, they are immoral. The text tells us that they are worthless and they did not know the Lord. So those are the spiritual leaders of the day. And God makes an announcement through Samuel to Eli that all of your descendants will die by the sword of men. So God is cleaning house. Samuel is raised up. Look over in Samuel chapter 3. The Lord calls Samuel out. We've been through that. But I just want to recount there what it says at the end of that chapter in chapter 3. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now earlier it has said that there is a rarity of God's word. Now it says that he lets none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is just central in that paragraph. Samuel is raised up. And Hannah's prayer that Jason read earlier is, is kind of this prophetic outline for what's going to happen through the rest of First and Second Samuel. And the focus is on God. Who can stand before this God? Who can stand before this God that Hannah tells us is absolutely incomparable? He is holy. There's none like him. He is the only source of strength and salvation and security. Israel's about to learn that. Who can stand before this God who is omniscient? His knowledge is complete. He tests every thought and intention of our hearts. He knows it all. He's the perfect judge. He's omnipotent. He has the power to carry out everything that he desires. And he reverses human position. Her whole prayer, her whole praise is this picture of reversals. And he is sovereign. He alone is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe. Now, in chapter 4, 5, and 6 of 1 Samuel, Samuel disappears. And the ark, this, this gold-covered box that represents the very presence of God, takes center stage. The Israelites are fighting against the Philistines. They get beat. They go, Dad, man, we forgot the ark. If we'd have had it, we would have won. So they get the ark and they get creamed in battle. And God says, I will not be used as a good luck charm. The Philistines capture the ark. And God's message is, I won't be a prize of war either. So they store the ark in the temple of Dagon, their God. And you remember that Dagon falls face down before him. And they have to prop their God back up. And then the next day, he's lying down face down with his head severed and his hands. And God says, I'll not be a prize. 
And God breaks out among the Philistines and boils and growth and wrath. And God says to the Israelites and to the Philistines, I do not need you fighting my battles for me. I can handle it myself, thank you. And then in chapter 6, the Philistines said, we've had enough of this. The hand of God was heavy there wherever there was. And they said, we've had enough. Let's take this thing home. And the Israelites celebrate, but they take it lightly. And God strikes them in chapter 6. And there's a great outpouring, it says. God struck them with a great blow. And they mourned because of the Lord. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And in chapter 7, in those first two verses there, so they bring the ark up to this place called Kiriath-Jerim, bring it to the house of Amenadab. They get his son and consecrate him as a priest to take care of it. And the text says there that all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. For the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, it says there a long time passed, some 20 years. So for 20 years, the ark sits up here at the house of Amenadab. I don't know if it was in his barn, if it was in his house, in his living room, in a closet. It doesn't say. It just says that for 20 years, this thing rested in that house. So then we pick the text up here. Follow along with me in chapter 7, starting in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, Samuel's back on the scene now. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron and Gath and Israel delivered from, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. 
Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. It's an amazing chapter, and it's really a turning point in, in this accounting from Samuel. And as we see Samuel step back into the scene, he speaks right into the context of what's going on in Israel's life. There's been 20 years of, of barrenness, 20 years of silence, it seems. 20 years. It says there that the house of Israel has lamented after the Lord. That does not mean that for 20 years they've been lamenting after the Lord. After 20 years, something has changed. Something's going on. Something seems to be happening in the people's hearts. And so we begin with this call that Samuel gives to repentance. And as he does, he shows us the radical nature of what genuine repentance looks like. And that's a good lesson for us today. So they're confronted with the reality of their idolatry. They're confronted with the reality of a sinful lifestyle that goes along with idolatry. They're confronted with the reality of what happens when people who claim to be followers of God get immersed in the culture and the culture begins to define them rather than their faith. And what jumps off the page to me as I look at this are some realities. Sin brings God's judgment first. Sin will bring God's judgment. It might not be seen immediately. But it will bring that judgment. Secondly, by His grace, God shows us the reality of that sin. Listen, dead men don't see well, do they? Well, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we're not for the fact that God in His grace opens the eyes of our hearts to even see the reality of our sin. We would never know how badly we need Him. And he offers that to them there. He shows them the reality of that sin. But thirdly, not only does he show the reality of that sin, but God's grace then leads to what we saw, we see as a godly grief, a godly sorrow over that reality. Sorrow in a good, healthy, spiritual way. We'll see that in just a second out of Second Corinthians. So there's something going on here among the people of Israel. They've lamented, it says, after the Lord. Now, they had already, it says, up in chapter 16 in verse 19, excuse me, in chapter 6, 19, the people mourned because the Lord had struck them with a very great blow. They're mourning there because they've been disciplined. And it hurt. But it's different here. It's different here. For 20 years, it seems there's been a dryness. It said that, Chapter, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So they're lamenting after the Lord, and it seems like they're lamenting this fellowship, this relationship with God that's not been the reality there for a long, long time. Something seems to be changing. Well, for 20 years, Samuel's been gone. And the question that I've had this week, Susan and I were talking about a little bit, like, so where's Samuel been? What's, what's been going on for these chapter 4, 5, and 6 where there's nothing about Samuel? And earlier in the book of Samuel, God says, I'm going to raise up for myself a prophet after my own heart. A faithful priest, rather, who will do according to what is in my heart. And you know what I think? I don't have any idea where it was or how it was happening. But I think God has been raising up Samuel for the last 20 years to do according to what's in God's heart and mind. And Samuel, I believe, has been preaching, he's been proclaiming, and it's been falling on deaf ears and hard hearts. But now all of a sudden there seems to be a change. Maybe God has softened that heart a little bit. Maybe there's a crack. 
And that word suddenly is starting to work its way in. And there's a change. No longer is it just the desire of their own hearts. No longer are they doing what is right in their own eyes. But they sense that they've been out of fellowship with God. And they yearn for that. They mourn for that. They want that. Like Spurgeon says, there's something there that used to be a flame, but now it's just a spark. But they want it back. And Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then prove it. Prove it. Repentance starts with sorrow. And well, it should include grief and emotion. But it must not, cannot stop there. Otherwise, it's just an emotional experience. Like a little three-year-old that's been caught, maybe his hand's been slapped or tapped. You know, there's sorrow that he got caught. No, repentance begins with sorrow, but it does not end there. And so Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then prove it. Real repentance is tangible. It goes beyond emotion, and it, it includes specific actions, specific steps, an undivided devotion. He says, put away these gods. Put away this lifestyle that is a part of the culture around you. Turn away from this idolatrous lifestyle. So not only is this this repentance calling for tangible steps, these are hard steps, church. Let's not deceive ourselves. This is not easy for the Israelites to do. It's not easy on a lot of levels. It's not easy on a practical level because they are agrarian people living in an agrarian society. And the religion of the day says that if you're going to be successful, then you need to turn to these gods, these idols, Baal and Asherah. Baal is the god of storms and of rain. Asherah is the god of fertility. When those two gods come together in that in that sexual relationship, according to this religion, then what results is fertile ground, wet skies, and you get life from the earth. That's the culture of the day. And so for an agrarian people like the Israelites, living in this society and needing to make a living, this is an attractive way. Not only is it attractive on a practical level in that sense, it's attractive from a sinful sexual standpoint. Because of the worship and what it entailed. I love what Dale Davies says. He's written a little, little commentary on 1 Samuel. And, and he actually relates this back to Romans chapter 12. In view of God's mercy, present yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable worship, he says. So listen to this quote and you'll see where that ties in. It's kind of comical in some ways. Davis says this, Canaanite religion exerted a powerful appeal with its sexual rites that were a part of its worship. Most fun-loving Canaanites, he says, doubtless found the combination of liturgy and orgy highly congenial. Not to mention the convenience of having a chapel and a brothel in one location. It is not easy task to peel the Israelites out of the grip of a cult like this that both asked for and approved of the offering of their glands as a living sacrifice to Baal and Asherah, which was their reasonable service if they wanted their crops to grow. So it's an appeal. And it's a work to separate from that. It won't work just to say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. It won't work to just say, I need to do better. It won't work to just say, I don't need to go to that website anymore, or I don't need to do this anymore. 
It won't work to just say, I don't need to hang around that person anymore. I need. No, it's not something that will naturally happen. It only happens supernaturally. It only happens when the Spirit of God does a work in that person. And it has to be done according to what Jesus says, violently, radically. Remember? Jesus said, if you, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if everyone, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. You don't break away from sin and a sinful culture and a sinful lifestyle by just taking an idol and burying it in the ground under a tree. There has to be a separation. Tangible, visible, and sometimes in a sense violent. If that sin's going to be put to death. And that's what he was calling on Israel to do. So, we see that there's this godly sorrow. And there is appeared to be godly repentance. Because this repentance bears fruit, it says. The people put away their bales in Asherah. And they serve the Lord only. You see, there's a radical heart change going on in the hearts of the Israelites. J.T. pointed it out beautifully. On a good day, on a good day, they have a divided heart. But many days aren't good. And they're not divided at all. They just, God is out of the picture and they're unconcerned with God. That's not an undivided heart. That's a perverted heart. That's a heart that's enculturated. On a good day, they have a divided heart. And it, and here Samuel has called for, and it seems that they have indeed turned away from the Lord. It's just what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, right? When he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so this is the picture that we have. And so Samuel then says, he follows up and he says, gather all of Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel there at Mizpah. So the fruit of their repentance is seen, I believe, personally, individually, as each individual man and woman and family makes that decision to put those gods and goddesses away and to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. But then they make a corporate demonstration of this fruit of repentance. As they gather here at Mizpah, They gather in this assembly of some type that Samuel calls them to, and they gather for worship, they gather for a picture of commitment, and they they get together as they fast and they confess. Commitment, confession, and worship. As they gather in that place, it says that they poured water out to the Lord. And I haven't read a commentator yet who knows exactly what that means. There's some ideas. I have some ideas there. It could be that in that agrarian society where it depended on Baal and Asherah coming together for water to fall out of the ground, God's people are in a visible way saying, no, water comes from God. He's the one that waters the earth. Maybe that's a picture of their commitment. Maybe it's a picture of total commitment. You don't get that water back up out of the ground. And neither does that one who is totally committed and wholeheartedly seeking the Lord going to turn back. Oh yeah, we'll sin. We'll take three steps back and four forward or two forward and three back. 
But there is at least a consistent desire to follow the Lord. Maybe they're picturing that. I don't know what it is. But they're making a visible commitment of their commitment to Christ. So they worship, they commit themselves in porn, and they confess their sin, it says there. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel did what judges were called to do, which is stand there and, and, and deliver the word of God. Judging there is not just carrying out civil suits or carrying out some kind of legal matter. It's a matter of shepherding. He's shepherding the people as they gather there. Well, what's going on across the creek there? What's going on on the other side where the Philistines are? Well, the Philistines, it says, heard that the people of Israel were gathered at Mizpah. And what would the lords of the Philistines think if they see Israel gathering? Well, here they come again. They've had their thumb on them. They've whipped them over and over again, the Philistines have. And they see the Israelites gathering again, so naturally they think, well, they're gathering for battle. And so the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Oh, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel responded as a good priest would. He took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord on their behalf, it says. He cried out for Israel. And the Lord answered him. And so here's this picture of God's deliverance. The reality of it is one that cannot be ignored. It's a picture of God's miraculous deliverance, and there's no doubt where it came from. God had promised this. This is, this is what he had promised he would do. Turn over to the book of Leviticus. Just turn back to your left, and I just want to show you this so we can get the context of God's promises to his people that have now stood the time for over 400 years. In Leviticus chapter 26, here's what the Lord says to Israel in regard to their obedience. Leviticus 26.3, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall increase its yield. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. Verse 6, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. He says later on, I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. God says, if you'll walk in covenant faithfulness to me, I'll be covenantly faithful to you, and I will give you peace. I will remove the harm. No sword will come against you. He had made that promise. And here at Mizpah, he fulfills that promise. He fulfills that promise. Now, we need to understand something, and this is important. God does not deliver them because they repented. If that were the case, then the ark should have worked back in chapter 4. If we can twist and move and somehow cut a deal with God that he's going to work on our behalf. Repentance is not the reason God brings deliverance. Repentance is a condition of that deliverance. It would not happen without it. 
God in his sovereignty might or might not deliver if they do repent. There's no promise there necessarily. So it's just important we recognize that God is not being finagled here. He's not being in some way turned. And their response is good. It's not great. It's good. I mean, from my perspective, my, well, why don't you pray yourself? Just go before the Lord. Pour your heart out. Cry for deliverance on your own, Dad. Why do you need to go to Samuel to do it? It's not great, but it is good. It's a whole lot better than it was earlier, right? And one of the things that shows us how much better it is there in 1 Samuel is, is the way they refer to God there. They, they ask Samuel to pray for them. Call out to the Lord, it says, on our behalf. And it says there, call out to the Lord our God. That's a big deal. That one little phrase there. Call out to the Lord our God. Remember in chapter 4, the ark was what? It. It. We need it to be successful. Well, now it's the Lord our God. There's a personal ownership, a personal crying out there that's essential. It says much there about their hearts. And so they cry out to the Lord. And while they're praying, while Samuel's praying, while they're worshiping, Samuel offers up the whole burnt offering. There is no blessing of God apart from a sacrifice. All right? That's a biblical truth. The blessing of God comes through the blood. And that sacrifice is offered. So as Samuel is sacrificing and praying, as the people are there, I believe, worshiping, they're afraid. They're afraid. And maybe from our perspective, they go, well, why would you be afraid? Listen, for 20 years plus, they've done what is right in their own eyes. They've had no king to lead them, no priest to really serve them well. They're beginning, they're crawling spiritually. Listen, sinful habits are hard to break, are they not? That's true physically, it's true mentally, it's true emotionally. They've walked in fear for a long, long time. Let's not deceive ourselves and kid ourselves and think, well, they should snap out of it right away. No, there's still fear there. But if fear, at least the fear now is pointed in the right direction. They're crying out to God as they should. And as they pray and as they cry out, what happens? Well, what happens is exactly what Hannah said would happen in chapter 2. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. Yes, the Lord thunders from heaven. And it says the Philistines are thrown into confusion and defeated before Israel. That one sentence must have so much military strategy going on in it, right? How did that happen? I have no idea. I mean, all of a sudden, this army of Philistines that has done nothing but conquer and take captive, they're just running around like a bunch of idiots. Because God is thundering. And there's a sound in their ears and there's a fear in their hearts and there's confusion. And, and God defeats them. God puts them down. And God's people, as they should, come on the coattails of God's work on their behalf, and they do the cleanup work and pursue the Philistines, it says in verse 11, as far as Beth Carr. The contrast here between chapter 4 and chapter 7, we need to just note, okay? I'm not going to take any time to do this, but you just need to note some contrast here, some parallels, okay? In chapter 4, Israel was struck down, right? 
twice. In chapter 7, the Philistines are struck down. Same word. In chapter 4, there was manipulation. We need the ark. We need it here. And if it is here, then things will go better for us. There's manipulation in chapter 4. In chapter 7, there's repentance. And a crying out to the Lord our God. In chapter 4, it ends with a word. Ichabod. The glory is departed. In chapter 7, it ends with another name. Ebenezer. The stone of help. Till now the Lord has been our help. So there we see unfolding before us God's providential care for his people. What's the proper response to that care? Look at verse 12. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called his name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Well, how has the Lord helped us? What, what, has, what has God done? What is God doing here? Well, notice what he's doing. The, the Philistines are subdued. And not just one time they're on that field of battle. They did not enter the territory of Israel again for as long as Samuel ruled. Now the Philistines will pop their ugly heads back up out of that mole hole later on. But for now, it's done. Okay? So the Philistines were subdued. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. There was restoration in verse 14. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel, this is down further down on the west coast area there of the promised land. Those cities are restored to Israel, Ekron, Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So once again there, you see the hand-in-hand work. God is doing the work. It's God's power. It's God's work. But God's people are a part of that. And there was peace even between Israel and the Amorites. Where did the Amorites come from? Well, they're just another one of those tribes that is opposed to God's people. And there's peace there too. So the blessing of God is being poured out in response to the worship of God, that sacrifice, the prayers of God's people. And what is the proper response of his people till now? One word. Remember. Remember. Remember how faithful God is. Remember how faithful God has been. Until now the Lord has helped us is not a statement of a time constraint. It's not like, well, up until now he's done okay. I don't know what will happen tomorrow. That's not what that means. That's not what Samuel is saying. Till now the Lord has helped us, I believe, goes back like the psalmist would all the way back to the Exodus. All the way back to the patriarchs. All the way back that God has been faithful to us, even up until this day. Remember how God was faithful in calling Abraham. Remember how God was faithful in calling the people out of Egypt. Remember how God was faithful in even keeping a remnant in Egypt. Remember how God has been faithful all of this time, all the way up to this current victory. And this stone of remembrance, this spiritual marker, as Jonathan called it, that's exactly what it is. It's a spiritual marker, a physical, spiritual reminder of God's faithfulness. And they put that stone up there till now the Lord has helped us. So remember, Israel, remember, church, remember, individual Christian, how God has been faithful to you in the past. How has he? Just sit for a second and think. How has God shown his faithfulness to you? How has he helped you? Up until this day, how has he done that? And recount that, I believe. Not just remember it, but recount it. 
Declare it. Remind yourself of it and remind others of it. Because as you do that, then that reminds you that God will continue to be faithful. One writer put it this way, and I love this quote. It is memory that keeps gratitude fresh. It is gratitude that keeps faith faithful. I love that. It is memory that keeps gratitude fresh. And it is gratitude that keeps faith faithful. Here I raise my Ebenezer. To hear or hither in the old King James. Hither by thy grace I've come. And I know God by your good pleasure that I will safely arrive at home. But I also know that I'm prone to wonder. Oh Lord, I feel it. I'm prone like the Israelites to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, God. Take it. Seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Over in the book of Jeremiah, there's this amazing reminder that the prophet gives to the people of God. You can just write this down. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read it to you. Jeremiah chapter 32, God has just laid the people out about how unfaithful they've been. He says, they turn to me their back and not their face. (laughs) Though I've taught them persistently, they've not listened to receive my instruction. He goes on, they've set their abominations up in my holy place. And what is God's response to that? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord in verse 36 of Jeremiah 32, the God of Israel concerning this city, which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine and pestilence. God says in verse 37, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I've driven them in my anger and in my wrath and my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts and that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good. Amen. God rejoices in doing His people good. Even when we are prone to wander. Even when our hearts are divided. So God has helped them. Now listen, there's one other aspect of this that I at least need to mention. Up until now, God has helped us. God has been our help even when we wandered and stumbled through the wilderness. God has helped us even when his heavy hand of discipline was upon us. God has helped us even when the Philistines whipped us on the battlefield. God was helping us. God is helping us in our disease and in our delight. God is helping us in our trouble and in our celebrations. We have to believe that, church. We have to believe that God is sovereign over both. And that he is using both for us. We have to believe that first because his word clearly says it. And we have to believe it or otherwise despair would conquer our souls. Yes. Up until now. He has helped us. He's helped in a practical way too. This chapter is not about leadership per se. Okay. It's not about how to be a good leader. But it includes that 
And I think that's the point of what we see there in verse 15. It's this brief summary of a whole lifetime of ministry. How do you summarize a whole life of faithful? Just shepherding, taking care of people. Well, I believe that's what the writer does here. I believe that's what's summarized in verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. He judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This chapter just seems to summarize, I believe, all that's gone on over these period of years where Samuel's just been raised up by God to be a faithful priest and prophet. You see, Samuel led repentance, led Israel in repentance when it's necessary. And when repentance is not necessary as far as that sin being right front and center, then he leads them in righteousness. He leads them to walk in obedience. That's part of what judging means. And as he leads them to do that, he he just does the hard work. He rides a circuit. And as he rides that circuit, he judges. He preaches. He declares God's word. He prays. He intercedes. He sacrifices. He worships. God said, I'll raise up a faithful priest after my own heart. That's what Samuel's doing. And it's hard work, but he does it faithfully. He does it faithfully. And he comes to the end later on in chapter 12. And, and he just preaches it. It's like this final sermon, although we'll hear it from him again. But here's what he says at the end. And we'll get to this, but it's just so cool. He says to the people, I'm in, second, I'm in 1 Samuel 12, verse 20. He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Faithful ministry is going to be honest with you. You've done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, Samuel kind of turns personal here. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider... Remember, Samuel says, what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. That's faithfulness. That's being a faithful shepherd. How do we, how do we apply chapter 7? I've got four words for you, four, four concepts. First one, recognize. Recognize Jesus in 1 Samuel 7 because he's front and center. Recognize, recognize Christ as that sacrifice that's offered down in verse 9. That whole burnt offering to the Lord who is offered up. And God blesses that sacrifice because God requires it. Recognize Christ in that sacrifice. Recognize Christ in Samuel's intercession. For we have a faithful high priest in Jesus who intercedes for us even right now at the right hand of God. Recognize Jesus there. Recognize Christ in the deliverance that comes from the enemy. The deliverance, by the way, that Israel did nothing to accomplish. Nothing. God did it as he thundered. And God did it for us as he thundered that day on Mount Calvary. Pouring out his power and his wrath on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. And gives us deliverance as we turn and trust in Him. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus for this peace 
This blessing of peace that comes there. Who can stand before this holy God? Only those whose sin has been judged by Jesus on the cross. That's all. Turn to Christ today. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. And you may not even really understand all that repentance means, and that's okay. At its most basic sense, it means turning from your sin and yourself and turning to Christ. And crying out to Him for deliverance. Do that. Recognize Jesus. Secondly, repent. Repentance. Martin Luther nailed those theses to the door there at the Wittenberg. And he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. The entire life of a believer is the lifestyle of repentance. And this is an essential missing element in many of our walks with God. It's an ongoing aspect of what it means to be sanctified. You see, repentance is what's required when we see God the way, when we see sin the way God sees it. We'll want to violently, aggressively, whatever we need to do, do it to be rid of it and separated from it. And listen, guys, it can be the sexuality of the culture. It can be the politicization of our culture. It can be the, the degradation of God's word and not taking it for what it says. It can be forsaking of the assembly. It can be a whole list of things. But seeing those for what they are, which is sin, seeing it as idolatrous, which it is, seeing it as buying into the sinful lifestyle of a culture, and seeing it as God sees it, is the way we see re- sin and repentance. Secondly, though, faith goes hand in hand with repentance. Repentance is how we see sin. Faith is how we see Christ. Faith is how we see the promise of God that says if we will confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Faith is how we see Jesus' sin, Jesus' cross, as being sufficient. So we see repentance and faith going hand in hand. Repent. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, without regret. But worldly grief produces death. And he goes on to say that there's an earnestness. This earnestness of godly grief produces in us an eagerness to clear yourselves, to cleanse yourselves. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Thirdly, remember. So the first one is recognize Jesus. Second is repent. Third is remember. Again, it's memory that keeps gratitude fresh, and it's gratitude that keeps faith faithful. Till now God has helped us. God's consistent, constant mercy in your life, through the good and the bad. Remember it. Recount it. I was reading back through the Psalms this week. Fifteen times in the ESV, just in the book of Psalms, We see the word tell, tell, tell of God's righteousness, tell of God's salvation, tell your children of God's works, tell of God's of God's power, tell of his righteous acts, tell it, tell it, tell it. Parent, does your child know where your Ebenezer is? Do your children know where God has been faithful and shown you mercy? And I don't necessarily mean can you take them back there and show them the rock. You might be able to. 
Grandparents, do your children and your grandchildren know your faith story? Did they know where you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and put down your rock, your spiritual marker? This is my faith story. Remember, that may be the key to revival for many of us. Just remembering how faithful God has been, even while we've been unfaithful. Ultimately, my Ebenezer, as is yours, is right there. It's at the cross. That's the place. Remember that and recount it. And then finally, again, it's not the point, but there's a principle here. That there is, there is blessing in good, faithful, godly leadership. Dad, this applies to you and your home. Mom, this applies to you and your home. Christian man, it applies to you and your business place. Christian woman, in your place of work, or in your mothering, or in your education, or in your homeschooling. Godly leadership matters. And where there's a lack of it, there's forgetfulness, forsaking the ways of God, and worldliness. And Samuel sets a good example for us there. But finally, I don't care how good a priest Samuel is. How good a prophet he is in proclaiming the word. How good he is even at being somewhat of a king, leading them in righteousness. Just read the next verse in chapter 8. In the end, Samuel fails too. The only good, perfect prophet, priest, and king is Jesus. Amen? To Him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we, I pray. God, I pray that You would revive us again, that our souls would delight in You. That we would delight, Lord, in fellowship with You. In the blessing of your presence and your peace. Delight in, in, in your word. Delight in your people. Delight in your church. Father, I pray that. And where I can't see that happening, God, show me the idol that stands in the way. And by your strength and by your grace, rip it out by the roots. Lord, do that. Among your people in this place, I pray. Lord, we just don't want to read about something going on on a college campus. God, do that work here, I pray. Father, bring souls into the kingdom. Father, restore to us the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.